Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor, and we are, uh, we are looking today at our fifth in our series, Considering Discipleship. It's not a comprehensive uh, guide, it doesn't claim to exhaustively look at everything that we might think of, but it is giving us, uh, we hope, a grounding in what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower uh, of Jesus. We're going to be looking at Psalm 122, but we're going to pick the reading up in chunks as we go through. And before we go any further, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we put ourselves in your hands. We want to follow you. We want to be faithful to you. We want to have integrity in the way that we are a church, a, a group of disciples on a pilgrimage together. Would you bless us with understanding and would you soften our hearts that might be, we might be willing to be challenged and transformed by you, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay then, so a little um, overview uh, of what we've looked at so far seems to be appropriate. Um, you can have a proper look uh, at the detail by looking at the previous parts in this series just by looking on our YouTube channel. But this is where we've got to in, in a very brief way. Number one, discipleship is like a pair of boots. To be a disciple is to choose to travel, to go somewhere. And that place you're going is that pilgrimage with Jesus. Jesus called us to follow daily. And so understanding what it means to be a disciple is in part about how we obey that call. Our discipleship is marked not by perfection, but by progress. Secondly, discipleship is like clothing. We put on the right clothes for a journey, the ones that are appropriate for that journey. Being a disciple isn't something that happens to you. It's something that you choose to do and you bring yourself to it, your heart, soul, strength and mind, your desire, your identity, your imagination, thinking and your behaviour. They're all given to Jesus. Thirdly, discipleship is like uh, taking a map with you. Knowing the way to go over the terrain isn't easy either. The life of discipleship is challenging and Jesus shows us how that is navigated. So following Jesus is like having a map and knowing Jesus' way of doing things, his attitudes, is like us taking that map with us. Fourthly, discipleship is like carrying a rucksack. We take something with us as disciples on this pilgrimage and crucially that thing that we take is one another. Wonderful and flawed and inspiring and sinful and kind and broken, we are people who support and encourage each other on this journey. And here we are looking at part five. Our journey of discipleship is challenging. We have a road to travel. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus, being his apprentice, making that journey with him means making choices for Jesus over and over again, much as you do every time you come to a junction uh, on a path, if you're on a footpath or on a road, if you're driving. It means bringing the whole of who we are to Jesus. It means doing life the way Jesus would do it. And it means doing it with others. Our togetherness, our gathering, uh, 
um, whether that's in a, a, a big number or a small number, is part of what sustains us. God gives us one another. And at no point as disciples are we to be loners. Our baptism is a reminder that we are brought in to something, to, to the community of God's people. And our togetherness holds us together on that journey. It means we take encouragement from others and we give it too. It means we're accountable to each other. It means we listen and we share ideas and experiences. We learn from each other and we keep each other grounded too. On this journey, our togetherness can be what stops us from drifting off and just doing our own thing. We are safer in the together than we are outside of it, believing that we can navigate this by ourselves. When our togetherness is weak, our discipleship is weaker and our journey gets tougher and more dangerous. Gets to be higher risk. We do need this map for Christ-likeness as we navigate this journey. And Jesus did tell us that people would know us as disciples because of the love we have for one another. So those things are crucial. But the other thing we need is clear sight. You might imagine um, that wherever your journey is, being able to see where you're going and have a clear idea of your destination or your target is going to be vital. And it's with this in mind that we bring in the idea here of worship. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider this psalm. And the psalm that we're focusing on is Psalm 122. At its heart, worship is basically about the orientation towards God himself. Psalm 122 is a psalm of worship. And let's have a look at where it starts. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I'm reading from the NIV here. It's not the only version of the Bible that I think is useful, but it is the one I tend to use when I'm preparing. This is a psalm that celebrates the idea of worship itself. It's a psalm that enjoys worship for what it does and what it represents. It's a psalm that loves the gathering of God's people in acts of worship. It's important as we look at worship as part of being a disciple that we think about this why question. Always important, I think. Whenever we're thinking about doctrine or theology or ecclesiology, which is how the church works, that we are asking the why question. Not just what are we used to or what have we been told to do, but why is it important that we do this? And maybe why is it important to do it in a particular way? It's also important that we think fairly deeply because... Our walk with Jesus is so important in, in who we are that uh, we need to reflect. We need to understand ourselves, what we think and why we think it. And we can't do that without having a, a good, deep think. We said earlier on in this series that study doesn't make us disciples. Knowledge doesn't. No matter how much information we have about God and how well we know our Bibles, these things don't make us disciples. Following Jesus is the thing that makes us disciples. And this means that knowing why we do things is always crucial. So why, if we're thinking about worship, why do we worship? I'm going to quote Eugene Peterson at this point. There's uh, a book he's written called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which I would recommend to anyone. And he says this, worship gives us a workable structure for life. 
Worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. And worship centres our attention on the decisions of God. You see, worship is about an orientation to God, a decision to face God, to look in his direction. Let's crack straight on and have a look at verses three and four, which they say, say this. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. The writer of the psalm sees a connection between the way Jerusalem is built and the activity that is worship. Now, this piece, this psalm, is written by pilgrims. It's part of the Songs of Ascents, songs used by pilgrims as they were making their way towards Jerusalem. So it's not written by residents of Jerusalem who live in the city day by day. It's not written in praise of the architecture. It's a song about worship. We know this from the way that the psalm starts. When the people of God gathered in Jerusalem, they encountered God in worship. That was the means by which they had to encounter him. That's the, the thing they did in order to encounter him. And they encountered the reality of a relationship with God by doing this. God created you. God redeems you. God provides for you. In worship, the writer behind, behind this psalm knows that the framework of life is found and expressed in worship. It's like the hoop used in embroidery. It provides a framework and everything that happens within it makes more sense when the framework is in place. We can see clearly, see the bigger picture and take confidence that what we're doing makes sense because we have that clear view. To worship was to recognise what God has done and is doing and will do. To worship was to recognise that all the variety of humanity came together under God. And that the people, all the tribes of the Lord, function as a whole, as a single unit, when they turn to God in worship. And to worship was to remember all of those things. It may well be that our experience of worship, when we all gather together and doing something like that, doesn't reflect all of those things in its awareness, but they are all present in this psalm's understanding of the value of worship and why it's done. Looking again at the text, Psalm 122, verses 3 to 4, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. To worship is to recognise the relationship between us and God. To worship is to praise God for who he is, as well as what he's done. And to put ourselves where we should be. We, and it is definitely us, not just me, recognise our right place in worship. We are loved and cherished by God, and yet our right place is to submit in worship. The NIV uh, version here talks about praising according to the statute given to Israel. The, the New Living Translation takes that concept and describes it as um, what the law requires. But the message version talks about praise as part of what it means to be Israel to be the people of God. You see, this idea of statute given to Israel, law given to Israel, is best understood as the framework by which God wanted his relationship with his people to be expressed and described. 
there is something incredibly and deeply relational about what the Lord demonstrates to the people when God gives it. Uh, and for more on that, it's worth looking at Leviticus. There is stuff on our YouTube channel about that too. So we cannot be the people of God in the same way that Israel couldn't be the people of God without bringing worship to God. It's, it's part of the DNA of being in God's family. Now this might challenge some of our ways of thinking and doing things. I remember saying to my mum one day as a teenager that um, I didn't want to go to church and surely um, it was better if that I didn't if I didn't want to. You know, to go with the wrong intentions was hypocritical, I argued. And it can be, yeah, it can be easy to feel that if we are approaching God um, without feeling praisy, without, without feeling worshipful, then there's something, something of integrity that's missing in that situation. But the psalm writer here, I think, says otherwise. It doesn't leave room for that the way you might imagine. We worship because the nature of our relationship with God includes worship. There's a Matt Redman song I'm a big fan of that has a line, and it talks a lot about praising God. And it says sometimes um, it's a song of joy, sometimes a sacrifice, sometimes an easy choice, and sometimes a battle cry. Our approach to worship will be different depending on how we're feeling. But worship it is assumed will happen anyway. We worship because it's right that we worship and we worship together in that situation. The writer hasn't suddenly switched from togetherness to aloneness here. In fact, remembering that these songs of ascents were sung by pilgrims together traveling up, they sang it as a community as they headed towards Jerusalem. It was never something that they were going to do on their own. Bill Hull, the writer on discipleship that I've quoted several times in this series, says this. Discipleship worships in the context of the community. The biblical metaphor for worship is sacrifice. We come to sacrifice, to serve, to set aside our own agendas. We gather to contribute to each other's lives. You see, sometimes the sacrifice of our worship will be how we feel. Not, I hasten to add this, not that we switch off how we feel or that we stamp on it and pretend it shouldn't be there or, or try to force it to go away. We don't do those things because they are not healthy things emotionally to do. And God is not asking us to make ourselves emotionally unhealthy in order to worship him. But we are able to say, I will bring everything of who I am all my messed upness and frustration and disappointment, I'll bring all of that to Jesus. But I would also allow it to sit on, on the workbench of my mind and give God the glory, knowing that I can then come to God and say, this stuff's still here and it's still important. It's not about an either or, but it is about a both and, and there is a place for worship. As our translations of Psalm 122 verse 5 show us, the people of Israel saw worship as something so important that it ought to happen. They weren't truly being themselves if they didn't worship. They weren't being God's people if God didn't have that role in their collective life. 
our culture will try to tell us that we should feel something, otherwise doing something isn't genuine. But we also know that this isn't necessarily true. We might go and celebrate a birthday with a friend or relative and we don't feel like celebrating, only to find that going to celebrate helps us feel celebratory. It's a bit like that. It's, a, it's an incomplete metaphor, but there is some similarity. Worship is an act that develops feelings. And C.S. Lewis crucially, famously said that people shouldn't worry about loving their neighbour. They should worry about behaving as if they love them and then that the love would follow. There will be time when the journey from action to feeling is a very long one. And coming to God to worship will sometimes feel like the hardest thing in the world to do. And if you get to a point where you just think, do you know what, I, I, I think coming to worship would actually be counterproductive. I am also confident that God knows us well enough to know that those moments are real too. And he's not going not gonna to tell us off for our honesty. Having said that, coming to worship is still right and good, no matter what the circumstances are. If Christians only worshipped when they felt like it, there may be very little worship. And to praise God in worship is to do something that meets our need to be in relationship with God. So actually it does us good to worship because we're going to the God who loves us and makes a way and and is faithful and can be trusted and bringing who we are in front of him and allowing him to bring his compassion and mercy as we allow him to be himself. So worship is to centre our attention on the decisions of God. The psalmist, the writer of this psalm, shows us that worship includes putting ourselves in front of the speaking and doing God. Verse 5 says this, There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. God is a doer and a speaker. He reveals himself in what he says. This is part of the beauty and gift of the Bible. The word for judgment here means something like the decisive word by which God puts things right. When Jesus talked, he gave people a perspective on God that they might not have seen before. Jesus said that to know him was to know the Father. He tells us to refer to God as Father in Matthew 5. A quality of relationship is clearly indicated in that instruction. When God speaks, it matters and it changes things. It brings order to chaos and, and love to bitterness and hope to despair. God's judgment the doingness of his word cancels out wrong, defies death and establishes justice. This is exactly why in Micah we get this um, through the prophet from God. We get this instruction um, that what God requires of us is to. Um, I'm going to get this in the wrong, wrong order. Uh, <laughs> love mercy, act justly and walk humbly with our God. We are to love being merciful. We are to love behaving in just ways and bringing about justice. 
and we are to walk with humility, knowing who God is and who we are as we walk next to him. When we gather in worship, we connect with God's word and we do this together. Doing it together doesn't have to mean doing it in enormous numbers. I'm not absolutely sure um, yet what the place is of Jesus saying when two or three are gathered, I'm there with them, because it comes in the middle of a conversation about how people might be disciplined in a group of disciples. So I'm not quite sure um, what it is he's trying to give uh, us a, a sense of there, except that it might be to do with saying um, you're never out of my um, awareness. You know, my justice is present wherever you are. But we also are confident that no matter how many of us do gather, we have the Holy Spirit with us and that the Father hears our prayers and that Jesus intercedes for us. So in, in that context, with this doing and speaking God, we can be confident that no matter how many or few of us there are, if we're coming to worship, that worship is heard and that God honours our desire to put our relationship with him into action through that worship. We see God most clearly when we are willing to put aside the distractions that keep us from worship and give our whole heart to worship. In worship we see clearly, we come face to face with our God who reveals himself, we turn to face him to get that view. We cannot truly understand who we are in the context of who God is unless we turn to him and have clear sight of him and what he's like. In worship we see clearly, we remember that we've seen something of God in our day-to-day -day lives. We remember what we know of God and his character. And we glimpse something of our future with God. We see clearly when we worship. And so as we go back to that idea of, of being pilgrims and, and of what we're taking with us, this, for my money, is, a, is like taking um, binoculars uh, or a camera. Something that allows us, or, or both, something that allows us to see clearly and record and recall what Jesus has done and is doing. We're able to see ahead and remember what has already been and that God is good in the middle of all of it. These things are done together, whether it's a group of, you know, 3,000 like it might be at a spring harvest type event or more than that if you're in a mega church somewhere or you know, 200 if you're at a, at a large regional church, or 50 or 20 or, or 8. Our ability to give God our full attention is the thing that makes our together walk in discipleship work. We see clearly when we turn our focus to God and God alone. Doing them on our own doesn't work. If we stay home and read the Bible alone, we end up 
as individuals, not as church. We go away from we are the people of God to I am a person of God. And there isn't anything individualistic about being disciples. In fact, to do things in an individualistic way, to do trying to be a disciple in an individualistic way, um, to do being a disciple in an individualistic way turns it into a consumer thing. We end up seeing the congregation as a place to acquire God, to grab hold of spiritual goods and services. And we search for goods and services that suit us, our style, that, that match our colour scheme or, or meet our needs or, or reflect our own design preferences or that solve our problems. Our worship then, if it's individualistic, becomes an attempt to enhance ourselves when it should actually be about turning and facing God, orientating ourselves by him and where he is and only him. Again, there's something sacrificial in this, isn't there? To be able to say it doesn't need to be the way I would choose it or the way my people would choose it. It needs to be something that is only about facing God and honouring him together. Real worship in real togetherness is about God, not me, not us. To worship as a disciple is to turn away from needing things to be packaged how we like. These things are not enough to form us in the image of God anyway. And instead, to worship as a disciple is to accept our limitations and our vulnerabilities and our um, dependence on all that the Father brings us, as explained and demonstrated by Jesus. Psalm 122 shows us worship as God's framework for life, as an expression of our relationship with God, and as coming face to face with the God who reveals himself. In worship we see clearly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we place ourselves in your hands and determined to follow your example. You worshipped your Father. Would you help us to worship him too? You allowed your worship to be the thing that guided and strengthened you. Would you help us to be like that too? Would you help us invest in one another as we face the almighty God in worship? Would you give us courage to know that we might allow some things to be put on the workbench for a moment while we worship you and allow you to be yourself in loving us. Amen. Okay, then here's our three questions this time around. Question one is this, what are the photographs that you have taken? We talked about uh, worship being a way to have clear vision, but also to record and be able to recall the way in which God's goodness has been shown to us. So do you have photographs? Maybe, maybe it's not visual snapshots in your mind, but do you have memories of the way in which God has moved in your life that you're able to call to mind and say, well, 
you know, last week, last month, five years ago, I know that God did this good thing and it gives me confidence in him. What are your photographs? What are your memories of God's goodness that you can call on and, and stories that you can share? OK, question two. This is a reflection question. I'd like us to think about ourselves and how we tick, and I'd like us to be honest as we do that. So what are the things that mean that you are tempted to be individualistic in your worship? What are the things that make you arrive at worship or, or approach worship thinking, well, I, I need it to be this or, or I would rather it was like this? What are those temptations and, and how might you ask God to help you with them? He longs to draw you to himself. When worship is happening, it's a relational thing. God wants uh, your full attention in, in much the same way um, that in families we want each other's full attention. What are the things that, that threaten to interrupt that? What are the temptations that might make you individualistic in your worship? And question three, what are the feelings that are most likely to fill your mind when you are wanting to worship God? Most of us uh, who are disciples, who are already wanting to follow Jesus, know that worship is something that we want to do and we want to do it wholeheartedly. But we probably also are aware of of regular thoughts that might come to mind while we're in, engaged in worship, whether that's singing or anything else. What are the things that draw your attention away uh, and might make it more difficult to focus on God in times when you are intending to worship? It's important to recognise those things because we need to be able to spot them when they happen and then put them in the right place. It may be that we just need to let them go. But if it's something to do with, with, the, with the way a, a song has been sung badly in the past and it, and it messes with your head and you find it hard to sing now. That might just need to be something that you ask God to help you let go of. And it might be something a lot more complicated. It might be, um, I certainly have a song that was sung in church the, the first Sunday I went back to church after my dad died. And um, something about the way the words worked, the great words, um, uh, the song is Because He Lives, um, means that for a long time afterwards I found it difficult to sing that song without feeling very, um, very sad and, and going back into that place of mourning. Now, that's not wrong, but I do also want to be able to sing that song as a song that, that allows me to worship God for who he is, not just as a song that reminds me of a sad time. So um, the the kind of the breadth of things that might um, mess with how you engage with worship, they can be very, very wide indeed. And I think it's important that we say, yes, I know what my my issues are with those things. I know um, I know that I hate guitars or clarinets or pianos. And so when they're played, I find it very hard to, to concentrate. Whatever it might be, just to recognise that's real and to bring it to God and say, this is a thing for me. Help me with it. And of course, always with something like that, to, to take the courage to speak to someone else who knows Jesus too and say, 
I don't need you to fix this, but I feel it's important that I'm honest with somebody and accountable to somebody about this situation. Not because I think it's necessarily wrong, but because I want to grow and I would like encouragement and support while I do that. OK, that's our three questions. We'll see you again next time for part six.